Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And we're coming at you a little late this week because... Uh, we hate everything. <laughs> and I was out of town and there was some Skype stuff and we we're on I like, got a job. You got a job. Yay. Eh. Yay for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So we've been busy lately, but we're happy to record a new podcast. I do feel bad. I feel like this happens a lot. She's been crying for like a week. No. No, I just, I've been wanting to do something kind of special for Black History Month. And of course, there's like two days of February left, which is sort of lame. But I've been thinking about it all month long. So that counts, right? Sure. Okay. And I, yeah, I just have a lot. There's a lot. All right. I guess I could even start off with some of my kind of like honorable mentions of, of people that I'm not actually going to explore today specifically, because I am going to just focus on the two FBI agents that I talked about in one of the past episodes. Just a couple honorable mention shout outs that I really wanted to do, and I'm sure we will in future episodes, kind of focus not so much on the criminals, but maybe on some of the people who fight crime, which would be cool. One is Brian Stevenson. He's my hero. I love him. He actually just had a movie about his life come out called Just Mercy based on his book. He's super duper amazing. He's helped exonerate hundreds of people off of death row that were falsely imprisoned. He's he's super amazing lawyer. I mean, his list of accolades is insane. I was looking at his website the other day. He's got over 40 honorary degrees. Wow. uh, PhDs like from around like the world. And I mean, he has the creme de la creme of PhDs. He went to Harvard Law School. So, I mean, you know, everything else is just honorary, but he's Illuminati. got... Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> he's enlightened. He's lovely. I love him. And I haven't seen Just Mercy yet, but we'll see how... I think Jamie Foxx plays him. I don't know how I feel about that. Like I, just, I said, Illuminati. I feel like I would have wanted... I don't know. No, no. Well, maybe. Jamie Foxx is probably Illuminati. I don't think Brian Stevenson is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what it is. (laughs) Also, my other hero who I've actually gotten a chance to meet is Angela Davis. I've actually seen her speak on a couple occasions, which is super awesome. I also just wanted to highlight an organization called the Black and Missing Foundation, which is headed by Derricka and Natalie Wilson. I also love Lester Holt. He's the guy who does Dateline. You love Lester Holt. He just did an interview. Well, he's black. <laughs> These are all black people that I'm honoring I know. here. But he just did an interview on the Murder Squad with Jensen and Holes. And he's just a lovely human being. And he's been doing that shit for 25 years. And he really, he, I love that he's not like shy or not shy to be like cocky. 
He's all like, yeah, I've been doing this shit before it was like a thing. You know, this true crime. Yeah, I've been doing the true crime thing for like longer than you've been alive. I mean, he wasn't saying that to them, yeah. but he's just like, yeah, I've been doing this forever. It's like I didn't necessarily go into it for this because he was a political correspondent before that. But he just went where the money was and he really loves it. And he's just he's just a really good person. I really loved listening to his interview. So if you have a chance, check that out. They've been like really killing it in like the interview game right now until their new season starts on March 16th. Um, last week they interviewed Phoebe Judge from Criminal, which is one of my favorite podcasts and she'll get a shout out in just a second. She's not black, but she did an awesome episode last week that just gave me the chills and I've been thinking about it ever since. In her last Criminal episode, she covered Russ Ewing, who I did not know about. He was a Chicago TV reporter, investigative journalist, and he became known as like a go-between uh, which he was not a hostage negotiator or anything, but he negotiated more than 115 surrenders to police of wanted felons often wanted for murder. And they would, like, request him. Yes. They'd be like, I'll give it up if you get Russ Ewing over here. And what's cool, too, is that Russ Ewing had, like, a private plane that he would, like, use on his, like you know, reconnaissance missions and stuff. Like, he just seemed like a really awesome dude. He just died last year, I believe, at the age of 95. So he had a very long, illustrious, effective career that he just sounds like a total badass. I just, he sounded awesome. So if you haven't checked out Criminal yet or you haven't checked out the most recent episode of Criminal, I highly suggest that one. It gives you all the feels. Did he jump out of the plane, like, with a parachute and just, like, land? <laughs> no, but like he definitely, like, technically broke some laws, which... I'm surprised that, like, white police didn't go after him as being, like, a black dude who, like, did a bunch of crimes, like, in the 70s, technically. Because realistically, he was bringing people, you know, safely to justice. But he definitely crossed state, like, four or five different state lines to get felons or get people to the places that they needed to get to. So technically speaking, he was breaking the law. But he also was just, like, this awesome, like, basically crime fighter. And but he was helping police. He was helping police. And so he was also kind of seen as a little bit of a traitor. But he was, to but his, people, but people, yeah, but people recognized that had these black people who were requesting him to help with the go-between, had they not gotten his help, they would have been shot and killed by police. Yeah. So, realistically, he was helping his black community, but it definitely could be seen as him, you know, being a traitor a little bit because he was handing them over to predominantly white police officers, you know. Anyways, but I say all of that knowing that we are going to be focusing on not those people, <laughs> but they're all just really awesome people that I love. So this, uh, most of my resources from today came from PBS, credible website. I've, I've heard of them. Uh, the FBI website, I've maybe a credible heard, heard website. Of them. I don't know. San Diego State University. Not heard of that. See, I try to go for the little more like Mainstream. academic. No, you you're like Wikipedia, Reddit. <laughs> I tried to go Message for a little, a, a little more scholarly, a little more uh, credible websites, I guess. Well, and of course, I use Wikipedia too because you got to every once in a while. They help with the timeline, moving along it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't just use Wikipedia. <laughs> All right, so the two people that we're going to be discussing today is James Wormley Jones and Sylvia Elizabeth Mathis. 
Now, the time period between these two individuals is going to be huge, and they never knew each other or anything, but these happen to be two of the first um, black FBI agents. I have a question. Yes. Uh-oh. What? Is James Wormley Jones related to James Earl Jones? No, I'm pretty sure that is racist. What? No. No. Just checking. Okay. But I love James Earl Jones. He's awesome. Oh, love him. He is so good in Fences. I mean, August Wilson wrote the part of Troy Maxson. No, I mean, yeah, whatever. Okay, yeah, he was the voice of Darth Vader, but he was also the voice of Troy Maxson of Fences. And that role, literally, August Wilson wrote it for James Earl Jones to do on Broadway. And I believe he did win a Tony Award for it. He's amazing in it. I just, oh, so good. Better than Denzel. Sorry. Don't say sorry to me. I agree. Okay. James Wormley Jones. I like that middle name. Wormley? I Yeah, it must be his middle name. That's my or, new favorite adjective. <laughs> Wormley. You're looking very Wormley today. <laughs> James Wormley Jones was born on September 22nd, 1884 at a military base in Hampton, Virginia to John Bradford Jones and Sally. I guess that is his middle name then. Wormley? Yeah. Did you think that was his maiden? Well, I just thought it was like maybe a hyphenated last name. Like that maybe was like his mom's last name or something. I don't know. So he was born to John Bradford Jones and Sally Jones in Fort Monroe, Virginia. He spent his teenage years in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but returned to Virginia in 1902 to attend Norfolk. Uh, Norfolk? Probably. Norfolk? Nor, you're asking me? <laughs> Nor- Norfolk. 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 I, Nor- that's hard to no say. Fucks. No fucks. Mission College. <laughs> <laughs> he also attended Virginia Union University in Richmond, Virginia, where he completed his education in 1905. He was a World War I veteran and former detective. He'd also served as an instructor in explosives and bomb making during his time in the Army, which made him a perfect candidate for undercover work. Though he could be remembered as the son of a slave who rose to prominence against many odds, he should be remembered as a decorated Washington Metropolitan Police Officer, a decorated World War I veteran and teacher of, you know, war tactics, and of course the first black FBI agent 101 years ago this year. That's a pretty good resume. Yeah, I'd say so. At this point, I wanted to give a little bit of a timeline and point out some things around gender and race here that often get overlooked. Okay, so the FBI was created in 1908. That's all I got. I don't know exactly. I mean, it was so under Theod- it was under Theodore Roosevelt's like direction to some extent. And we'll talk. I don't. I'm bad with history. So there you go. Eleven years later, in 1919, the first black dude becomes an FBI agent, James Wormley Jones. Now. I'm at, I was actually kind of surprised by this, and I was like, I wonder when the first female agent was. And it was 1922, so it was only three years after James Wormley Jones and only, you know, less than, you know, about 14 years after the FBI was created. But there's a but to it, okay? In 1922, Alaska P. Jones, which I thought is such a cool name. Alaska. Isn't that a cool name? Yeah, it's right next to Montana. Alaska or, is not right next to Montana. Not geographically. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure Canada is closer to Alaska, right? Is, yeah. Is Canada Alaska, is, is Alaska basically Canada? Alaska. Say that again. Is Alaska basically Canada? Why do we have it? Is it because of oil? 
It's we got and it. polar bears. I'm sure whatever happened, we got it fair and square. <laughs> yeah, we have a tendency of that, huh? In 1922, Alaska P. Jones becomes the first white female FBI agent, sort of. The Bureau was interested in hiring female agents to work on cases related to the Mann Act, M-A-N-N, which aimed to combat interstate sex trafficking. However, since she was considered very refined, a.k.a. had a vagina. <laughs> that's how I read that. Uh, that, that don't, don't quote the FBI on that, but that's what I think. Uh, you know what? Quote them. I don't care. <laughs> I, it, quote unquote very refined the order was given that she was uh, she wasn't to be put on quote unquote rough cases aka cases that might hurt her vagina <laughs> wow I didn't know the FBI cared so much yeah it's just like very refined and rough you know it's just like having like when you go to like Nordstrom's you never go to Nordstrom's I never go to Nordstrom's but in the area before the bathroom there's like always a chaise lounge you know, a chaise lounge is known as like a fainting couch for like women if they get ah, overexerted, you know. And so it's just funny because anytime I've been in a Nordstrom, I've gone to the bathroom. There's always a chaise lounge like resting area near the bathroom. And I'm always like, oh, this is where I can faint because I've just been shopping all day. <laughs> and I just think of myself as being a 1920s lady who needs to take a nap from all the shopping. Well, they don't have that in the boys' bathroom. No, they don't. It's just a trough of urine. It's the pile of dirty socks. <laughs> this, combined with her limited schooling, she wasn't super uh, educated, meant that she was considered to be of limited use uh, when it came to prosecuting crimes. During her work at the Washington field office, she was also involved in a case against another agent who was selling classified Department of Justice information to criminals. That seems kind of major. Yeah, I don't think that's... That's not highly... That's not legal. Yeah. After J. Edgar Hoover, who's very problematic. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, he was. he's the longest uh, standing FBI... Or not standing. He was the longest FBI director, I believe, in the Bureau's history. I think he was like... It was like 50 years or something. Don't quote me on that. After J. Edgar Hoover became acting director of the Bureau in 1924, following the Teapot Dome scandal... And I looked that, that was up. A bad, that was a bad one. Yeah. It was the secret leasing of federal oil reserves by the Secretary of the Interior, Albert Bacon Fall. That sounds delicious. He asked for Davidson's <laughs> resignation when the special agent in charge at the Washington field office reported that he had, quote, no particular work for a woman agent. And really? Quote, there wasn't even like any like dishes to be any? done? Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, that's a good one. She resigned uh, on June 10th, 1924. Now, this is so, I mean, I'm not surprised, but I'm surprised. Only three women became agents in the 1920s. And after the resignation of Davidson, sorry, I fucked that up. Um, her name is Alaska P. Davidson. I just got excited. I think Jones just sounds good with every name. So apparently I just called her Alaska P. Jones, but it's Alaska P. Davidson. I apologize. I have another question. Yeah. Any relation to Indiana Jones? Oh, my God. Stop. she That's not even her last name. <laughs> okay. Sorry. All right. So after her resignation, fellow agent Jesse B. Duckstein, Stein, Stein. 
resigned in 1924. And Lenore, Lenore, that's a good name. That is a good name. Lenore Houston, she resigned in 1928. And get this, there were no FBI agents that were females between the years of 1929 to 1972. Whoa, crazy. I know. I was like surprised, but not surprised. I guess I was surprised. I was like, wow, they hired a woman in 1922. And then I was like, not surprised that she got let go. But then that's a long period of time to just have no representation from women in the FBI, you know? It also wouldn't be until 1976 that Sylvia Elizabeth Mathis would join the ranks of the FBI as its first black woman. Okay, so back to James Wormley Jones. He began working in a new division called the General Intelligence Division under future FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. The GID had been created in response to recent terrorist bombings, and Jones's expertise and undercover work was invaluable in fighting domestic terrorism. Jones retired from the FBI in 1923 after realizing he could no longer work undercover successfully. Yeah, he was used a lot, like, undercover, because he could basically infiltrate black communities like nobody else could, you know? He worked mostly as an undercover agent, and the other white agents just couldn't do what he could do. Mm. So once, you know, they're like, hey, this dude, this same dude keeps showing up in all these places. We think he's a rat, you know? That's when he was like, yeah, I'm good. I got to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. The FBI is aware of at least, I like how they said it, we're aware of at least four other African-American agents who followed Jones in these early years of the Bureau. The first one was James Amos, who was the, he was a bodyguard of Theodore Roosevelt. Oh. And he was the longest uh, serving black agent, early black agent. He actually served for 32 years. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Nobody else did on this list at all. Not even close. Earl Titus, good name. These are good, strong names. Earl Titus, after um, he worked, after working as an Indiana Indianapolis police officer, joined the bureau on January 9th, nineteen twenty-two. He did some undercover work in the investigation of Marcus Garvey, which was, I believe, James Wormley Jones's largest case as well. Marcus Garvey was a black nationalist who was convicted of mail fraud in 1923. And then Earl Titus, second agent that I've been talking about, he left the bureau only after two years. But yeah, Marcus Garvey, super duper interesting guy. And of course, the FBI was always trying to infiltrate like black organizations like in the 50s, 60s, 70s and before and after and probably right now. Not even probably, definitely right now. But yeah, one thing that J. Edgar Hoover is very, like, criticized about and stuff, too, is how much he he just wanted to take Martin Luther King down so hard. Like, he oh. had so many eyeballs on that guy and just did not trust him. The last agent I'll just discuss real quick in terms of this kind of early Bureau timeline is Thomas Thomas Leon. Jefferson. Thomas Leon, Leon Jefferson. He entered the Bureau as an agent in 1922 and participated in many investigations, including the Garvey case, prostitution, human trafficking. In in November 1924, he was commended by acting director Hoover for his work on a bankruptcy investigation, and he retired in 1930. So he served for about eight years. 
So just kind of a note on some diversity or lack thereof in the FBI. I'm just going to quote a couple of people who are former special agents and stuff. I watched a lot of kind of mini documentaries that the FBI filmed last year for the 100 years of um, African-American service in the FBI. And so a lot of the stuff I got was from those series of films or short interviews. So this is one thing that they said. A diverse FBI will be a more effective FBI, said Voviette Morgan of the Los Angeles field office. She is the only African-American special agent in charge. 83% of the FBI's 13,500 special agents are white, and only 4.4% are black, even though African-Americans make up about 12% of the U.S. population. That's down from 6.5% just a decade ago. A retired high-ranking FBI official involved in the agents' diversity efforts told The Intercept, which is where I got a lot of this information from, which is uh, a news source that was actually started by the dude who started eBay. Oh. Yeah. It's called The Intercept. It, I, I kind of like it as a news source. I liked it. Like, I don't know much about it, but it looks like a cool kind of newspaper. In the mid-90s, after a class action discrimination lawsuit brought on by black FBI agents, black officers made up about 5.3% of the force. So we're definitely even down from there. We're only at 4.4 now. I don't think in the African-American community you can think about, ooh, I want to be an FBI agent, Morgan said, and I hope that changes. I do want little girls like who look like me to have this as a very viable option to deserve it and to want it. Current FBI director, <laughs> what? <laughs> Out of context, that quote is... Gross. What? Okay. Weirdo. Current FBI director Christopher Ray has made recruiting people of color a top priority. In order for us to be successful, I think we need to be reflective of the communities that we're sworn to protect and serve. That's super important. New FBI agents visit the Martin Luther King Memorial in Washington, D.C. as part of their training and study Hoover's policies towards Martin Luther King. FBI officials said it provides a lesson on what happens when power is abused. And that's just the race problem with the FBI. It's hard to diversify an agency that many still associate with systemic surveillance, infiltration, and repression of civil rights activists in the past, and which maintains ample discretion today to target individuals and groups it deems suspicious based on criteria all too often uh, that reflect their race or religion. Isn't that the thing with Bloomberg right now that like he's having a hard, I don't think a single black person's going to vote for him because yeah, he's, he's the stop and frisk guy. Yeah, he is that. Yeah. He's got like. Which is basically essentially racial profiling. Like He's like the yeah. racial profiling guy. Yeah. Like, I don't think got, you're like, ever going to be able to shake that. Non-disclosures with women that like, like worked for oh, him and all God. this stuff. Yeah. He's but George he's like, Burns. From The Simpsons. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Huh? He's a billionaire. Yeah. And he's like, anyways, we I don't want to get like too political He's like spending so here. much money on this campaign. I it's know, crazy. I know. It's fucking weird. I don't know much about him other than just like stop and frisk, racial profiling, and billionaire. It's crazy to think how much money they spend on these fucking stupid campaigns. And then you go down the street and there's like tent cities and shit yeah and it's it's weird yes that's fucking crazy but also a lot of times it's this weird fucking i don't understand strategy you know you know sleight of the hand trick where it's like i know i'm not going to become president i'm just fucking shit up so this other guy doesn't become president you know what i mean like there are some conspiracies around bloomberg 
trying to like upset the balance with Bernie and all this stuff. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with I'm him. not super either, but like there's no fucking chance he's going to win. I, I don't think he's even on the ballot in like some of the places because he signed on to He like, just, you know, Kirk, is that the guy that just died, Kirk Douglas? Or is it Mike? Yeah. yeah. Kirk Douglas's last words were, Mike can do it, which I think is Michael Bloomberg's slogan. Maybe he's talking about Michael Jordan. Oh, maybe. I'm pretty sure that's just, just do it. <laughs> don't, that's Nike, but, you know. Targeting groups, race, religion. The Bureau's efforts at reform so far have been mostly aimed at recruiting a more diverse force, but people of color who do sign up and join its ranks often find themselves isolated as they come face-to-face with racism and discrimination within the Bureau, as well as with the Bureau's often racist and discriminatory policing. There was one video I was watching of one, you know, earlier on a black woman who joined the FBI, and she said the only other black woman she saw in the all of Quantico, which apparently is like a little city, basically, which is like just houses a bunch of like bases. It's FBI land. It's FBI land. It's also like Marine land, too. She said the only other black woman that she saw was a cleaning lady. And the cleaning lady was like, laughed at her. And she's like, you're not going to make it. She's like, they never do. Maybe she was undercover. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's It's a long road that they still have to go down. So in 1976, almost exactly to the day, on February 17, 1976, a 26-year-old lawyer named Sylvia Elizabeth Mathis arrived at the sprawling Virginia campus. I didn't write that. That housed the FBI Academy. I probably got this from the FBI's website. Like the other recruits, she was there to begin the rigorous four-month training program and hopefully earn her stripes as a special agent. Mathis, however, had an added motivation and challenge. She was aiming to make history to become the FBI's first female African-American agent. It was an opportune moment. Nationwide doors were finally opening for African-American women. So this is, you know, definitely post-civil rights movement. Shirley Chisholm, who won a seat in Congress in 1968. All of these women were starting to kind of rise up and be in positions of power for the first time ever. So it was kind of this, like, ripe and ample time for Sylvia Mathis to kind of walk in and take over. Mm -hmm. Mathis earned her bachelor's degree in political science from New York University in 1972 and a Juris Doctorate from the University of North Carolina Law School in 1975, which Michael Peterson couldn't finish law school in North Carolina, so... She's better than him. <laughs> yeah, so take that. They, they, they were actually around the same time as one another. Her law school dean, a former FBI agent, encouraged her to consider the Bureau. Given her interest in both protecting and enforcing civil rights, she felt it was a good fit. She applied and was accepted in early February. I was surprised to hear about four. I was actually super surprised to hear this. At this time in 1976, about 40% of the FBI was women. And again, it kind of made me wonder, like, were they, like, cooking and cleaning? Like, I find that to be an incredibly high number for the 70s. Affirmative action. Well, uh, yes, and that that <laughs> is definitely a thing that happened. But also something I wanted to point out, too, was that a lot of times people, like, say women, 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 when they really mean white women. Because realistically speaking, you know, women's, do you, do you know when women's suffrage was? Uh... I don't. 
I'm no. forgetting it right now. Darn it. I usually know this statistic off the top of my head. It but like, it was a long time ago. But for like black women, it was much later. And for like Native American women, it was way later than that. 70. You know what I mean? So it's like we got to be really careful when we talk about like gender and like what races of gender we're talking about. Because it's just interesting to be like, yeah, the FBI allowed a woman in there in 1922. And then sort of kicked her out because Hoover sounds like a dickhead. But it, it was another like 54 years until a black woman was allowed into the FBI. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, women. But then it's like, realistically speaking, f- black women trail behind in terms of like, you know, representation and positions of power, like 50 years usually after white women. And then I would, I don't even know how many Native American women or other women of color are, you know, represented in the current FBI number, but it's probably not a lot. I bet you're right. Yes. I would have figured it would have been much less, especially since that none of the thousands of women were African American. Though welcomed by some colleagues, women and minorities often feel out of place at the academy. Before Mathis, there were two black women who started training at Quantico, but didn't make it. On June 2nd, 1976, FBI Director Clarence Kelly presented Mathis with her badge and credentials, number 2658. She was issued a leather attache case, an unadorned purse, and a Smith & Wesson revolver with a snub-nosed barrel short enough to fit inside the purse. Sexy. Yeah. Following graduation, Mathis was sent to the New York field office and, and assigned to the organized crime squad, where she helped to investigate illegal gambling and extortion cases. That sounds sort of fun. She worked in a variety of other matters, including handling short-term undercover duties and interviewing survivors of the 1978 massacre in Jonestown, Guyana. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and then I I was like, oh, that's so... It's interesting. I wonder why specifically Jonestown, you know, because that was one of the largest things she did while she was in the FBI and definitely one of the most notable. It's definitely the thing that's the most noted whenever you look her up. And I guess I just didn't totally know this. But then when I started to look into it, I was kind of like, duh. I found a great resource through the San Diego State University website at jonestown.sdsu.edu. Um, Rebecca Moore was the major contributor to this project. And basically, it's this racial gender breakdown of Jonestown that's so fucking interesting. I learned that the majority of Jonestown residents were female African-Americans, 46%. That's an overwhelming majority. Yeah, I didn't know that. I did not know that. And, like, a lot of them were elderly black women. And there's, like, a reason behind that. It's super interesting. Black males made up about a quarter at 23%. And as a contrast to those statistics, just to kind of show you where the white contingency was, white females only made up about 14% and white males made up 11%. And that has a lot to do with the history when Jim Jones started back in Indiana. He was this civil rights activist who had this quote-unquote rainbow family where he um, was one of the first people to what for one of the first white people to I think the first white family to adopt kids of color like that was just not a done thing before then so he was kind of ahead of his time in that sense he also adopted Asian children too it wasn't just black children and as most people know the Jim Jones started a church called the people's temple yeah 
And he actually adopted it in part, and I'm not going to go into it in gnarly detail, but from another black church with a woman who headed it called, her name was Divine. And I think her husband had been the pastor of it, but he died and she took it over and then he kind of took it over from her. So it's this very weird kind of changing of hands, but Divine was actually a follower of Marcus Garvey. That she blacks. was in those John Waters movies, right? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Different divine. Oh. D- different oh. divine. <laughs> I, although I would want to be a part of a church that was headed by the drag queen divine. <laughs> I, I, I would be in that church. I know you I'm would. pretty sure that church is in Portland. <laughs> we, had to, we had to flee. We Portland. had to flee the church of divine in Portland. <laughs> A large group of African-Americans who migrated from the uh, southern U.S. to California made up a sizable contingent of those living in Guyana. African-Americans had long supported the temple with contributions, tithes, and wages while living in California. But in Jonestown, it was clear that the Social Security checks of black senior citizens made up the primary source of income for almost a year. Isn't that crazy? They would literally sign their checks over to Jim Jones. Yeah. I'm helping. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so sad. And African-Americans held key leadership roles in the jungle outpost. So I'm taking a lot of this pretty much word for word from the SDSU website because I, I, I was just amazed and fascinated by it. So the analysis and implications of this data kind of hit on a couple really interesting points. And a lot of it's going to be somewhat repetitive to just kind of drive certain points home. The majority of temple members in Jonestown's were uh, was black. The numbers alone do not necessarily indicate the cultural blackness of an institution in terms of its values, goals, and purposes, but the high percentages of black involvement in the temple's Guyana operations do point to its existence as a racially black group. Second, the southern origins of people's temple men, uh, members also reveals the black roots of the organization. Several authors have noted that Southern blacks who moved north or west looking for work and safety during the migrations of the 1930s and World War II found established black churches to be too, quote, fine, fashionable, and formal, end quote, and thus turned to black cults. So again, like it was kind of born out of like that kind of fancy Southern black thing that people were like, yeah, I don't want to be a part of that, but I still want to be a part of like a black group. So that's where black cults became kind of popular. They were like less formal churches. So Joseph Washington wrote that these black religions um, provided a creative, imaginative, and indigenous uh, response to the failure of churches and society to satisfy the immediate needs of black people. We can see that the experiences of Southern black members of People's Temple may well have paralleled with those who joined Washington's black cults. So we're going to have to do a black cult episode. This sounds super interesting. I like it. Yeah. The involvement of Southern blacks in the movement strongly suggests a black racial and cultural identity. Third, elderly African-Americans provided many of the day-to-day financial resources for the project by donating their Social Security income. In return, they received health care, housing, food, and other basic necessities. Although one surviving black senior citizen, Hyacinth Thrash, whoa, Another coolest cool name. name, Hyacinth Thrash. Okay, that's a, that's got to be a band somewhere. Oh my gosh, what a cool name. Although, okay, so what, she's a surviving black senior citizen. She describes an inadequate diet in Jonestown and adds that one thing you can say for Jim 
<laughs> Jim Jones. He didn't deny medical care when they needed it. We all had our blood pressure checked regularly. Indians, too. Jim had real fine caring nurses, too, both black and white. So, again, it just sounds like a lot of people just really liked him. And he kind of was this civil rights activist for like a second, at least. Then he murdered everybody, including his chimp, Mr. Muggles. Fuck Mr. Muggs. Savage. No. What a dick. Was that the name of his chimp? I think it was Mr. Muggs. I want to say Muggs. Yeah, that whole thing, his story is pretty crazy. Yeah, well, I don't want to get into it totally. But finally, um, although African-Americans comprise only a minority of Jones's personal leadership group, they did make up a majority of the department heads and assistants in Jonestown. They also dominated the Jonestown security force, a contradictory position in which blacks may have been both feared and hated, as well as trusted and responsible. Nevertheless, it is clear that African-Americans played a number of significant leadership roles in the Jonestown community. Many of the People's Temple called Jonestown the promised land for African-Americans. They looked forward with the anticipation of having their own land, free of the problems of urban life, crime, drugs, unemployment... So in 1979, Mathis left the FBI and went to work as an attorney in New York for a few years before moving to Jacksonville, Florida to be with her family. And I bet you a lot of that information that I got from San Diego State University's website probably came from the work of Mathis interviewing people. Because, again, I think that a lot of times black and female FBI agents were used to talk to black female and you know what I mean? Just to talk to people that like, would they have gotten the data that they had gotten if it had been somebody other than Mathis, like interviewing yeah, them, right. you know? So again, like I can't say enough about the important work that was done. And 918 people died at Jonestown. Yeah, Just, it's crazy. It's fucking insane. And there were like about 100 survivors or so. So a lot of her work How was How many people around. are in Quantico? 500. So imagine so... double that and then kill them all. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah. So in 1979, Mathis left the FBI, went to go work as an attorney in New York for a few years before moving to Jacksonville, Florida to be with her family. She was later named director of the city's downtown ecumenical services council. Ecumenical. That's a cool word. Which provides (laughs) emergency services to those in need. Just the next year, in 1983, Sylvia's life was tragically cut short by a car accident at age 34. She did all of that by the time she was 34. I, you know, what have I done? Well, I've done kind of a lot. <laughs> I don't want to totally discount I put myself. out a couple death metal records. Yeah, I was a teacher in M still. That's about it. I can't say that I did all that she did in that short amount of time. So I don't want this to be a a story about a crazy white dude who led a bunch of black people into a jungle to die. I don't want that to be like Mathis's that's lasting your, legacy. Uh, that's not the point. That's not your celebration of black no. history. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't want this to be about two people that were seminal to the history of the FBI a long time ago either. Rather, I want this to be a reminder that diversity and the human experience matter. Something that I kept learning and hearing over and over again when I was listening to the the black FBI agents being interviewed was that diversity is so fucking important in both thought and action in order to be the most impactful. Black women and men are going to have different ways of going about 
issues in their communities or not in their communities than anybody else, you know? And this is not to also discount the fact that I'm sure there needs to be more Asian and other indigenous people and Latino agents as well. So it's not to discount them, but it's just to say that you can't just have a majority white police force, FBI force, you know, any kind of law enforcement, because that's not representative of the communities that they serve. Well, I think it's probably changing more now. No. According to this, we're down in diversity in the FBI world. That's not good. Give it another 10, 15 years. It'll all change. Oh, okay, Mr. Coronavirus. (laughs) Oh, yeah. If we make it that long, coronavirus is going to take it all out. You went went to Winco and bought some... We're all prepped up. Yeah. You know what, Winco? If you want to be a sponsor to this show, we use the hell out of you. That'd be awesome if Winco was a... I need to to contact Winco. Part of our executive membership. (laughs) Yeah, we send like Winco gift cards to people. All right, well, thank you for listening and dealing with our shenanigans this week and last. We are breaking up with Skype as a result. (laughs) We had a failed Skype conversation. Dude, we were on the help desk last night for like two hours, and the dude just finally hung up on us. He like... He, he, like, was remotely messing with our computer, and he just gave up. He's just like, I can't figure out this shit, bye. I would have done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you could join our Facebook group called True Crime Dumpster, where we post weekly and discuss crimes and other related things. I, I, yeah, I got some funny things on there now. Amy's been blowing that shit up real good. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter at TC Dumpster and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at, guess what, truecrimedumpster.com. At, at gmail.com. I messed that up. Yeah. Oh. But I'm, you can I'm, then view our garbage at truecrimedumpster.com. Yes, you can You can do that. You can email and I'm sure there's an email link from there. at gmail.com. Yeah. You can also listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Our Patreon is up, and we will be posting an episode there soon. So you can check that out. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. Join us next time when we talk out the trash with some more garbage people. Shout out to Dracula, our favorite and only Romanian listener. (laughs) Hell yeah, Dracula. And a shout out to our buddy Kay, our Canadian maniac who requested someone we will be doing soon. And hopefully... We we'll can, be on our episode, too. Uh, yeah, if we can work things out with Skype. I'm gonna have to go, oh, yeah, we might have to try something else. I'm going to have to go down there. Yeah. Knock, kicking, kick, kicking some heads? Knock my boots around. <laughs> also, we want to give a, just a shout-out to Canada in general. We have uh, quite a few listeners there. So check out Salamander Salt Curio, an antique-slash-curio shop in Vancouver, B.C. before it's not there anymore. And say hi to Sarah the beautiful gothy woman running it and her cute little cat named something I can't pronounce. Kaj? I think so. Cash? Cash. It's cash. It's casual. And you could buy something from her and don't be annoying or she'll post about it on Facebook. <laughs> or you can be annoying and she'll we'll post it on Facebook and you can make it on the True Crime Dumpster yeah. Facebook group and we'll all make fun of you. <laughs> 
So thanks for listening. Have a great week.